The New Statesman. Hi, it's producer Adrian here. We're bringing you a special podcast today from our Spotlight team. And the New Statesman podcast team will be back tomorrow. Welcome to the Spotlight podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Alona Ferber. In this episode, we're taking a special look at the fight against drug-resistant infections. In 2014, the then Prime Minister David Cameron commissioned a review into a worrying global phenomenon, the increase in drug-resistant infections. Microbes, tiny living things too small to be seen by the naked eye like bacteria that can often make us sick, were evolving a resistance to medicines used to treat infections. If we fail to act, Cameron warned at the time, We're looking at an almost unthinkable scenario where antibiotics no longer work and we are cast back into the dark ages of medicine. The economist Jim O'Neill, who chaired the review, predicted that by 2050, 10 million lives and a cumulative cost of $100 trillion of economic output would be at risk from microorganisms like bacteria, viruses, fungi and parasites that were becoming increasingly resistant to treatments. But six years on, antimicrobial resistance, or AMR as it is also known, continues to endanger humanity. In this special episode of the Spotlight podcast, sponsored by Pfizer, we brought together an expert panel to explain why AMR is so complex, how far we have come in tackling it since the 2016 O'Neill review, and what our best hopes are for getting it under control. Alongside Pfizer UK Managing Director and Country President Susan Reno, we will hear from the UK government's AMR envoy Sally Davies and the microbiologist Laura Piddock, Scientific Director of the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership based in Geneva. This podcast has been funded by Pfizer Limited. Non-Pfizer panelists' views are independent, but content has been reviewed by Pfizer Limited for API code compliance. Antimicrobial resistance is an enormously complex problem. But what causes it and what do we know about the ways in which microbes have evolved to resist medicine? Here's microbiologist Professor Laura Piddock, Scientific Director at the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, which is based in Geneva. My PhD that I started in 1982 was to investigate the way in which penicillin worked against bacteria that can cause infections in abdomen, infections right inside cause abscesses, particularly post-operations. And um, part of the method was to use a radio-labeled penicillin. So that I'm doing these experiments in the lab, and by radio-labeling the penicillin, you could identify what it's stuck to, i.e. its target, therefore understand its action. And I was following some basic laboratory principles from people who described the method in other bacteria. It had never been done in what I was doing. And I couldn't understand why I was seeing nothing on the X-ray films. So it's like doing a chest X-ray and seeing no chest. And it took me a while to realize that's because the bacteria were producing something that was chewing up the penicillin. And they had this intrinsic drug resistance mechanism called a beta-lactamase. There's lots of different types of beta-lactamases, but they are responsible for the majority of resistance we see to drugs like penicillin and many of the drugs we use today found in many bacteria. So that's when I first realized that this type of resistance was a problem. It was affecting my lab experiments. And I had to work out how to overcome that to be able to see the proteins, the targets I was really looking for. 
Laura has been studying antimicrobial resistance for decades, certainly since 1982, when she did her PhD in antibiotic resistance. For years, she's advised governments on AMR, raising awareness about this urgent crisis. In fact, she left a tenured position at Birmingham University to join GARDP because she felt that she could have a greater impact on AMR there than in academia. She told me what we know about antimicrobial resistance. We know that bacteria can become drug resistant in essentially two ways. They either share pieces of DNA by having sex with each other, and so they share drug resistance mechanisms between them, or in addition to the targets within the bacteria that the drug is binding to, to kill the bacteria, can change. And that's called by mutation. So this is all a process of evolution. If you put bacteria in a hostile environment, whether it be high temperature or an antibiotic, then you make a situation where their evolution is directed to survive. So they change themselves either by acquiring a way of living and in the presence of the antibiotic or by this mutation in the, the genome. Is it inevitable then, given that it's a sort of process of evolution, that microbes would develop resistance to the medicine that we've got? It's not inevitable that it will occur in the clinic. One can always select drug-resistant bacteria in the laboratory because we can tweak the conditions to make it favorable to identify these drug-resistant bacteria. And this is very helpful to do to understand how the drugs work. But we can take certain measures to prevent that happening in people or animals or elsewhere in the environment. So, for instance, if we're treating a patient, we can make sure the dose is appropriate to be sufficiently high that those resistant bacteria are less likely to grow. We can also tell people that you must take all of the drug. That's why we say take the course because bacteria are really good at hiding in small numbers if you don't kill them all. So people think they're feeling better, they stop taking the antibiotics, and then the bacteria come back. And unfortunately, what can happen is that the majority of the bacteria in that infection have been killed, but the ones that are becoming drug-resistant will survive. So We have these methods of overcoming. We also, of course, have to practice good infection prevention. This means preventing any infection. If you prevented getting an infection, good hand washing. We've seen this during the COVID pandemic. People became quite smart at preventing infection. The same goes for any microbe. So if you prevent infection in the first place, you prevent drug resistance. Sally Davies, currently Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, is the UK government's envoy on AMR. As former chief medical officer, she made sure AMR was on the government's radar, convincing David Cameron to commission that 2016 review into the phenomenon. I interviewed her this year for the New Statesman magazine, and the headline of that interview was that AMR could kill us before the climate crisis does. Sally, for the sake of our listeners, I want to start with the basics. The resistance of infections to medicine is incredibly complex, as you discussed with me earlier this year. Could you explain for our listeners what it is in the simplest possible terms, if that's possible, and indeed, what is at stake because of it? Thank you, and thank you for the generous invitation to come and talk with you. So antimicrobial resistance, some people call superbugs. It's when infective organisms, bacteria, viruses, or even fungi, 
actually naturally develop resistance to the treating drugs. So you may start an infection, say a chest infection, with a bacteria that responds to the drugs, and then you get better. But a number of people, sadly, will have caught a an infection that doesn't respond to the first-line drugs and may respond to more expensive, heavier, stronger drugs. So it is this resistance to treatments that really makes for problems. In fact, our latest data from earlier this year shows that nearly 1.3 million people die every year of superbugs, antimicrobial resistance, and it's the third most important underlying cause of death. And we can spread them. Of course, many in Britain and abroad will know about MRSA, that if you have MRSA in a ward, then it spreads from one person's skin to another person's skin, unless you're terribly careful. And of course, MRSA, if you get it into your blood or joints or bones, can be really terrible, causing death or real problems. So superbugs, they are a problem. Thank you. And in terms of what is at stake, you talked about the number of people who are dying attributed to AMR, but can you talk a little bit about what we could lose because of it? So with AMR, as year on year it gets worse, we are having problems. We're having problems keeping hospitals and healthcare facilities clean, less in the developed world, such as Britain, but much more in the low and middle income countries. But we're also losing people. They die when they didn't need to die, if only we had effective treatments. And it impacts the economic activity of a country. The Canadians did a quite nice study of the impact on GDP and showed it was equivalent to their car industry being taken out already, yet year on year it gets worse. So it's suffering, death, and economic activity that are all made worse. So very high stakes indeed. I mean, AMR has been on your radar for years. You were chief medical officer when the UK published its review on AMR. In fact, it was you who convinced David Cameron to commission that review. But you talked about that figure of 1.3 million people in 2019 dying from deaths directly attributable to bacterial AMR. That review predicted 10 million deaths by 2050. I think at the time of the review, it was something around 700,000 deaths a year were attributable to AMR. So what is, is it, have we seen AMR accelerating a lot since that review? Yes. AMR gets worse year on year. And when we have an empty pipeline of new drugs, treatments, diagnostics coming through to help us battle it, Meanwhile, over 80% of antibiotics are used in the food chain, and so food security is at risk. It gets worse. COVID made it worse. Antibiotics were overused, but of course, it, COVID also drew attention to the fact that infections damage the global economy as well as different nations' economies and individual families. So, I think COVID has woken people up to the problem as well as exacerbating it. So why do people refer to AMR as the end of modern medicine? Here's Laura Piddock. In the 21st century, we take for granted very high-tech medicine. We expect to be able to have a knee replacement or a hip replacement. We expect to have a heart valve replacement. 
we expect our cancer patients to survive for much longer, if not be in complete remission after five years after cancer's diagnosed. But if any of these patients get an infection and it's untreatable, then we are faced with a situation when there's no point in giving treatment, whether it be the surgery or the cancer treatment, because we can't prevent the infections or we can't treat them when they get the infection. So medicine will go backwards. The huge scientific and technical advances just won't make a difference. As Sally Davies and Laura Piddock have explained, AMR is a huge global health crisis, and there are many contributing factors from overuse of antibiotics in humans to overuse in agriculture. Is it the result of a policy failure? Is it a market failure or both? Where's the failure that's allowed it to continue? Laura Piddock. There's multiple points of failure. So one could argue that back in the 80s and 90s, that if a treatment failed, there was always an alternative that could be used. And there were lots of new treatments coming on board. That's not the situation now. So it means that very few new treatments mean that there's very few options for patients who have a multi-drug resistant infection. And this situation is increasing more often, including in high-income countries like the UK. Is it a failure of policy? Yes, it is in part. So we need incentives to keep making new antibiotics. And why do we need new incentives? Because antibiotics historically have always been very cheap drugs. And again, if we compare to cancer drugs, huge differences in price. But when you think that giving an antibiotic to a baby or a child means that they're likely to survive for another 70 or 80 years, you can see that we hugely undervalue them. But society is not going to change its approach to the price of antibiotics. So other ways of funding new antibiotics has had to be found or new treatment modalities. There is a lot of activity to find vaccines for drug-resistant infections, but you're not going to be able to vaccinate against all drug-resistant infections, and not everyone will want to be vaccinated. It may not even be appropriate. So you will always need treatments. We cannot prevent all infections, even if we had the best way of doing it. You're not going to prevent them all, and we saw that with COVID. So you're always going to need new treatments. Whether you are pushing discovery to find new antibiotics that work in the test tube, and then pulling them through to develop them into new drugs for patients, they're going to need different ways of funding. And it's going to need a lot of funding. And unfortunately, society has focused its attention on other therapeutic areas. I come back to heart treatments and cancer treatments. Everyone worries that they're going to have heart failure or a heart attack or catch cancer. And I say catch because that's a phrase people use. But let's be honest. People really need to be aware that infections are just have the same potential to kill you. And we need to be sorting out this area. Susan Reno is the UK Managing Director and Country President of Pfizer. Susan has been at the pharmaceutical company for more than 20 years. She led the UK Vaccines Business Unit during the pandemic and also headed up the UK Hospital Business Unit, where she led Pfizer UK's work on antimicrobial stewardship. She says AMR is her baby. It's something she is very passionate about. I asked her whether pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer bear at least part of the responsibility for the increased resistance of infection to drugs. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think Pfizer has a long and proud history in the development of antibiotics. But equally, we also have an important role to play in the stewardship and appropriate use of antimicrobials going forward as well. 
So if you think back at the beginning, the post-war years have been described as a golden era of antibiotic development. We went from a position pre-1940s where we had no options. People would commonly die of now curable infections to one where millions of lives can be saved and protected today. Yet already in 1945, following the discovery of penicillin in 1928, Alexander Fleming himself acknowledged that bacteria would likely mutate and develop resistance over time. It's only in recent history that we've begun to recognize the true scale of the problem and the need for urgent action. So in this respect, there are many similarities to be drawn between AMR and climate change. Yet while resistance is a growing crisis, access to antibiotics is vital to treat infections that would otherwise kill millions of people. So if you take in 2019 as an example, infectious diseases accounted for 9% of all deaths worldwide. Only 20 years earlier in 1998, infectious diseases were one of the main causes of mortality, accounting for 25% of all global deaths. This is a huge drop, and this significant fall between 1998 and 2019 can largely be attributed to the successful use of antimicrobials. So right now, we're in a situation where we need to urgently address the development of resistance, which requires good stewardship, education, and surveillance, while at the same time, we also need to replenish the pipeline with new antibiotics, and in particular, those that meet the WHO's list of priority pathogens. This is the responsibility of everyone. It has to be collective global action in order for it to work. How did we get to this point? I asked Sally Davies where she thinks the problem is. If you look at climate change, it took a long time for the public to bring their view to the politicians. And that's what makes the politicians act. And so I think we have not yet managed, perhaps I've failed, but I don't think we've managed to get across to the public what needs doing. And part of that, just like climate change, is the complexity. But I think it's tragic that people don't understand there are nearly 1.3 million deaths every year, more than HIV, TB, or malaria. 1.3 million deaths thanks to, or as a result of, superbugs, AMR. So from what you're saying, sounds like the real problem is political will or momentum to deal with it rather than one particular factor for this. We know a lot of what needs doing. To do it, we need the politicians to say, this matters, I've got the evidence, we've been talking about those figures, and then to put in place the funding for the surveillance and making this happen, the market failure incentives so that goes away, and actually to sort out through regulation and support the food security issue. So part of the problem is a lack of political momentum. What worries Laura Piddock the most? So there's two things. There's the personal worry that as I get older, like everyone else, we become more vulnerable to infection and that I could suffer a drug-resistant infection that's untreatable or, or even very difficult to treat, which would mean that I'd be in hospital longer, could be chronically affected. In terms of society, I think we're asleep. Our politicians are asleep over it. They don't recognize the importance. And that really worries me that we're still saying the same things that we've been saying for, well, over a decade, getting on for 20 years now. 
And yes, there have been improvements and the UK has had a real leadership role in this. But we need to continue to have that leadership role. We can't drop the baton on this. So I'm very worried that we're losing that leadership role and that the world is moving on to other things and focusing on other things. I'm also worried we don't seem to have even learned the lessons of COVID, which are directly transferable to other infections. Which lessons in particular do you think we haven't learned from COVID? Preventing infection. Everyone you know, was very concerned about catching COVID because there was no treatment and no vaccine. Perhaps people should be a little bit more concerned about catching any infection because there may not be a treatment or a vaccine. I know people don't like doing certain things, particularly wearing masks. I'm not sitting here advocating mask wearing today. I think that it's important in certain contexts. I think people do need to think that you can't see any microbes. That's the key learning of COVID and that they could be anywhere at any time and we need to continue to be vigilant. So simple things like washing hands. You know, if you are ill yourself with any sort of symptom, do your best not to share it with other people. If you don't need to go to the workplace, don't go. Particularly if you have an infection that gives an upset tummy, that can be a a drug-resistant bacterium. And whilst it's unlikely to kill you. If for any reason that bacterium got into your bloodstream or caused a very complicated urine infection, bladder infection, then you're going to really need antibiotics and you may need your life saving by an antibiotic. So prevention is always better than cure. But there are solutions too. I asked Sally Davies what we could be doing right now. We need a new generation of drugs. And I say that because though all the other things are important, it takes 20 years from starting on a drug to getting it out there into patients. So if we don't start now, we're going to be in a mess. Pfizer is part of an NHS pilot that takes a novel approach to developing antibiotics, for example. Here's Susan Reno explaining how this policy intervention works. We are really excited about this pilot subscription model. And I guess by way of background, Research and development into antimicrobials has been a challenge for decades, and this is largely due to what we call market failures, which are associated to bringing a new uh, antimicrobial to market. And what I mean by market failure, there are a number of different factors at play. So the journey from discovery to a clinically approved medicine is long, and the failure rate is high. Development of new medicines takes a huge financial investment, and once approved, it may be used sparingly to support good stewardship, which is a good thing, but it it creates a challenging dichotomy of needing to preserve public health while making it difficult to recover the high costs that are associated with development. So the implications of this are that no novel class of antibiotics has been discovered for almost 40 years, and only about 40 to 50 antibiotics are in clinical development at the present time. And By comparison, this is compared to thousands for potential immuno-oncology therapies currently being evaluated. Economically, there are few incentives for small biotechs and for larger pharmaceutical companies to invest in antibiotic research based on the current model, so it's widely acknowledged that a new approach is needed. In 2019, the UK agreed its five-year action plan for antimicrobial resistance, which followed on from the 2013 to 2018 AMR strategy and the 20-year AMR vision, in which, excitingly, 
the UK government committed to testing a new way of reimbursing antimicrobials to incentivize research and development of the future. So the purpose of the NHS pilot is to test a new reimbursement model in which payments made by the NHS to the company manufacturing the antimicrobial would not depend on the volume supplied. So it would be what we call delinked. Payments instead would be based on the benefit that the antimicrobial offers to patients and the NHS over time, rather than being linked to units sold. This approach is incredibly exciting and beneficial to all parties. So the company receives an agreed payment, which is based on the wider value of the antimicrobial and acknowledging the considerable investment in R&D that was required to bring it to market. And it also ensures a consistent pre-agreed supply to the NHS of new antimicrobials. The pilot went live in England on July 1st, and it will run for three years with an option to extend up to 10 years. And what I find really inspiring is the NHS has been a pioneer in pursuing this. And in order now to spark the global R&D needed to bring new antimicrobials to market, we need other nations to also adopt similar D-linked payment models. I guess most recently, we've seen action in the U.S. as well. So the Pasteur Act in the U.S. is another important step forward. And basically, the Pasteur Act essentially sets in place similar incentives in the U.S. There is a big question mark over all of this. If you speak to experts, to people like Sally, Susan and Laura, it's clear that AMR is a major, urgent global public health crisis. What also becomes clear is that they have been banging the drum about this for years and that while they're hopeful that change is possible, they're frustrated at the lack of attention AMR get. Here's Susan. I think if you look at the scale of the crisis and the fact that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, of course, there's frustration on the part of those of us who know this is coming and want to see more urgent action taken and larger public awareness around this, greater importance given on policymaking, et cetera. Yeah, I absolutely share a sense of urgency and a sense of I don't know, frustration, but urgency, certainly, on trying to get it higher up on the policymaking agenda, because I, I can see how so much of modern medicine depends on having antibiotics that work. And so it's not just the potential impact, the direct impact of having antibiotic-resistant infections on the population, but it's also the indirect impact of if you have resistant infections that don't have any antibiotics that work against them how much that could cripple our modern healthcare system. That having been said, if you look at where we are today, six years on from the O'Neill report, there has been a lot of progress made. I remember being at a conference in 2018 where colleagues from around the world were talking about the idea of a subscription-style reimbursement model. And I remember there were lots of voices in the room saying, this isn't you know, this isn't going to be possible. It's not going to be feasible. How are you going to possibly figure out a path where both government and industry can come together on this issue? You're diametrically opposed. There was a, there were a lot of naysayers in the room at this global conference focused on antimicrobial resistance saying that there was no way that you could get the stakeholders to come together and partner on this issue. And yet, here we are. We're five months in. And in fact, having led the way globally in the UK on this issue, we're now seeing other countries follow. So I, I do think, I think it, it does require a seriousness of purpose and a willingness to partner across many different stakeholders in order for us to be able to see the kind of impact that we want to see. But uh, 
I think there are enough people who are serious enough about this and see what the consequences are and are willing to work together to be able to make meaningful change that we can see change and we can see positive change. And we have seen positive change over the last six years. Is it as fast as I would like it to go? No, I'd love it to be faster and I'd love it to be stronger up on the priority list. But are we making steady progress in the right direction? Yes, I think we are. When we recorded these interviews, leaders were gathered in Egypt for the COP27 Climate Summit. Do we need a similar mechanism for AMR? Sally Davies. We do. And I started responding to your questions at the beginning of this podcast, talking about needing political understanding and then political action. And that's what we need. I think we're going to need a kind of COP mechanism where people are faced with where they are, how it's going. They say what they will do to improve. So a target which says, I will just have 101 outbreaks and no more, or a numerical target, doesn't really work. We've all got to say, this is where I'm starting, and I'm going to improve on that, steadily improve. And the rich countries will have to look at how we can help other countries, because as we learned with COVID, no one is safe until everyone is safe. And this is a bigger problem in low and middle income countries than it is in the rich global north. Can you talk a little bit about how it's a, how it's a bigger problem for those lower and middle income countries? The data is pretty clear that it's five or six times more prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa. One death out of every five is a child under the age of five. So it really, we've got the stark data showing that this is a massive problem. And it's not surprising if you've got poor sanitation, poor infection prevention and control, and you can buy antibiotics over the counter, then, you know, this does happen. We have got to help them get on top of this. Thank you so much to our three expert guests, Sally Davies, Laura Piddock and Susan Reno. And thank you again to Pfizer. This podcast has been funded by Pfizer Limited. Non-Pfizer panelists' views are independent, but content has been reviewed by Pfizer Limited for ABPI code compliance.